Hello, and welcome to this FRTH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Try to remember back to the day before coronavirus upended the world, say the beginning of 2020. The U.S. was preparing for an election. Donald Trump was going to run on the great economy. The Beltway Press, living in its bubble, had bought into the idea that the economy was indeed great. Unemployment was at an historic low. For those of us who live in the precariat, it was not a picture we recognized. We know that if you count people who work an hour a week or ten hours a week in the gig economy as employed, you're bound to have low unemployment figures. One economics writer wasn't buying into that narrative, Martin Sandbu of the Financial Times. Just before COVID hit, he was busy going through proofs for his new book, The Economics of Belonging, an admirably brief and to-the-point analysis of why so many in Anglo-America and other advanced economies feel left behind, and a set of policy prescriptions that could win back the left behind from the dangerous machinations of ethno-nationalist politicians. The Economics of Belonging has just been published, and I decided to ask him a few questions about the book. I started my conversation with Martin Sanbu by asking if the COVID lockdown had created problems for the economy that superseded those he writes about. Yeah, it's funny you should ask that. You say that the economic challenges are all new. Actually, I think they're an intensified version of the economic challenges we have already been facing that I address in the book. So I'd like to say, you know, I'd double down on this. It's even more urgent uh, in a post-pandemic world than it was beforehand. The book starts by challenging the populist narrative that globalization is the source of unemployment and the first world's economic woes. I don't see it that way at all. There are a couple of reasons why. One thing, the first thing is that the timing doesn't line up. Industrial mass employment in every Western country, every country that we used to know as the industrialized world, uh, peaked in the late 1970s, just before 1980. You see this in the US, where I think that the peak year is maybe 1979. Um, you see it around that time, give or take five, ten years, uh, in pretty much every Western country. And we should say that the, the share of industrial employment in total employment had been going down already, but in absolute numbers, the, the actual number of factory jobs peaked then. Globalization in the sense of trading with poor countries, poorer countries, which is where you think, or many people think that they stole the jobs or they stole the factories, China in particular. Um, I mean, that only took off really in earnest in the 1990s. Uh, you see uh, the US integrating with Mexico. You see most of the world integrating with, with the Asian tigers, the Far East. Um, in the 1990s, and then of course China in the 2000s. So the timing doesn't line up, uh, but that's not the only thing that doesn't line up. If you look at the countries that have navigated deindustrialization the best, it's actually the most globalized countries. I have in mind the Nordic, European Nordic countries, Scandinavia and Finland. Um, and they have always been very open countries. And, and the country that has clearly navigated these changes worst, which is the US, is a very closed economy, actually. It mostly trades with itself. So what is behind the growth of inequality and the current sense of not belonging to the economy? Technology. And here is a fact that many people don't know. So everyone knows that industrial jobs have gone. A lot of people think that that means industrial production has gone, but that is not true. If you look at the US, 
industrial output, the amount of stuff produced in factories in the US kept increasing through the 1980s, through the 1990s, even through the 2000s when this China shock happened. Uh, of course, it was punctuated by recessions, in particular the global financial crisis. But on the whole, and this is true for most other countries too, rich countries, uh, the factories of these countries are spewing out as much stuff as they ever did. Uh, that is the definition of increased productivity. Fewer people, fewer jobs, but more output. Uh, and this is the main story. These factories just kept getting better at producing what they were producing, needed ever fewer hands, robots, automation, better processes. You just don't need as many assembly hands anymore. On the margin, some of the least productive industries, sectors in manufacturing moved. Textile, for example, a lot of that moved. But, but on the whole, uh, the US and other industrial countries produce as much, as many industrial goods as, as ever. It's just they don't need many people to do that anymore. The factories right. are more efficient. One of the problems faced by economists trying to explain the way the world works is that data gathered over decades is just not as powerful in argument as lived experience. In the U.S., for example, since NAFTA came into effect, a lot of manufacturing that used to take place in places like Michigan and Ohio is now done in maquiladores in Mexico, and the resentments among people who lost their jobs because of this are deep and long-lasting. There are a couple of ways of answering your question. Uh, you know, what it, one, one is the sort of most direct answer about the communications challenge. You know, how do you tell a story that may be true, but doesn't chime with uh, what is experienced. Well, of course, one thing we have to admit is that the stories you tell are clearly true. There are some jobs that are no longer done in the US that are now done in Mexico. And, and every industry has become more globally organized. We see now that a lot of trade goes, uh, a lot of production happens in global production chains. But, but there are a couple of things to point out. One is that at least in terms of how we address this, it, it matters whether this is the most representative story. That doesn't matter to the people it affects, but it matters to how we can do things better for everyone. So, you know, we shouldn't forget about the things that don't come up in the most impressive stories or anecdotes, if you like. There are a lot of people out there who are not in the situation you describe, and they matter too, even if we don't hear about them. And the data can tell us something about them that the journalistic reports don't because the stories aren't as exciting. But the other thing that, that I try to ask is, do you really think that these jobs, you know, assembling, you know, sort of reasonably low skilled kind of job of assembling parts on, a, on an assembly belt, do you really think that those jobs would have remained in place even if they hadn't now been done in, in Mexico? So ask yourself this question from the point of view of the business owner. I mean, what, what, what I pointed out was that there's been a lot of productivity increase in manufacturing. That's because there are robots, there are automated, more automated processes. I think that if you hadn't had the ability to move some of the least productive jobs to poorer countries, you would have a greater incentive to automate them away instead. And this is, the, this is what you've seen in some of the most successful economies in terms of dealing with deindustrialization. I go back to the Nordics again. They have embraced automation. Right? It's not that they have kept the old industrial jobs and not let them escape. It's that they have accepted that over time, there are some jobs that are not particularly good use of human labor 
if you have machines that can do these jobs faster. I think that the many US manufacturing um, sectors may have lagged in the automation because they could move some of these lower skills jobs to, let's say, Mexico. And if they hadn't been able to do that, there's a good reason to think that then you would have had a robot replacing them instead. So you see, the, the countries that are sort of best known for having kept a decent manufacturing sector, Germany, Sweden, South Korea, they're also the ones that are leading uh, on robotization and automation. You know, th this is not a, it's not an, a simple story to tell. But it is trying to say, yes, your particular job may now be done by somebody in Immaculadora in Mexico. That doesn't mean that if that hadn't happened, you would still have this job or your son would have this job 30 years later. That, I think, would only have happened if the conditions in that job would have been about as poor as the conditions offered to the Mexican worker in the Maculadora. That would not have been a victory. So how is an economy created that includes those who saw the jobs they expected to have shipped south or simply made irrelevant by modern circumstances? If you want an economy where people will, have, will still have jobs and will have good jobs, you need to think about how you shift everyone from the simple jobs of the past to the more complicated and, I have to say, often cognitively more demanding jobs of the future. There's a story I, I like to tell, having lived in, in various places. I grew up in Norway in the 80s. I lived in uh, New York. I moved to New York around 2000. Um, I was discussing, I was, I was having lunch with a Norwegian economist sort of around 2000 who we was thinking about how does the US economy differ from the Norwegian one? And one example we, we hit upon that really seemed to capture much of the difference was a very mundane economic activity, the car wash. How do you have your car washed? So when I was growing up in Norway in the 80s, uh, the only way you could have your car washed was go to a service station, put a coin into a machine, and uh, you know if you were a kid, you'd find it exciting to stay inside the car while these big blue brush rollers swept over you. But it was all automated. Uh, in New York, you would drive into uh, a service place and your car would be set upon by three or four young men, typically immigrant men, probably wouldn't speak much English, washing your car down with washcloths. Uh, those are two very different ways of doing exactly the same thing. And there's a reason why, at least at this point in time, because it wasn't always like this, uh, in a place like New York, a business owner would opt for the labor-intensive technology rather than the machine-intensive technology. And the reason, of course, is that wages in Norway at the low end were much, much higher. It would be unprofitable to hire three or four people to wash cars relative to buying a machine to wash the cars. The opposite in, in a place like New York. But what that meant is that you needed fewer people in this sort of industry in Norway, and I've looked at the numbers, you know, by per, per car, there's about half the people employed in car washing in Norway than in the US today even. Um, but those who are employed would be tasked with other duties. It wouldn't be washing your car manually, it would be manning the machine, it would probably be, you know, servicing the machine, some mechanical knowledge and so on. For me, this is a bit of a picture of two different kinds of economies. One that allows businesses to rely on an intensive use of low productivity and therefore low wage labor. And one that doesn't permit that, where if there is going to be a job in the first place, it has to be productive enough 
to justify a reasonably high wage. And I think there are ways of shifting from one economy to another. So I, I use this example, which is not from manufacturing, but just to illustrate that the task we have as technology progresses is not to try to maintain a number of jobs and, and let wages be low just in order to keep people employed. We really need to try to jump from the style of economy that uses low productivity labor intensively employs people in low productivity tasks to one that only employs them in tasks that are productive enough that you can justify a high wage. So the car wash example is, is a really a, it's a bit of a metaphor, uh, an allegory, if you like, for two kinds of economies. And I think that the only way to sustain what I, I, call, I call an economy of belonging, one that really has a decent place for everyone, is to embrace technology, embrace technological change, and then try and equip people with the sort of abilities and skills that are needed to thrive in that sort of economy. That's what the Nordics on the whole have been good at. It's what the US has been very bad at. But this is partly up to us. There are policy choices you can make to okay. choose one or the other type of economy. All well and good. But how does this square with the prevailing business ethos of Silicon Valley? move fast and break things. The thing being broken most thoroughly is society. Literally billions of dollars in Silicon Valley venture capital is invested every year in a quest whose purpose seems to be eliminating human beings from the workspace. The justification for a lot of this innovation without people is improved productivity. But where is the human being in this process? That's exactly the right question. Being able to create the same level of material output with less labor input, let's remember that that, on the whole, is a good thing, right? It, it means less toil for more output. It's kind of what humanity has always wanted. The challenge is exactly as you say, what you do with the humans, the human individuals who need to adapt to that process. Well, well I think we first start we need to start by just admitting what I think is the obvious. We do need to adapt to this. We're not going to hold back technology. And even if we could, we shouldn't try. You, you mentioned the word productivity, and I know it's, it's a bit of a soulless word, but, but I think it's important because th there's a tendency in progressive policy thinking uh, to focus on redistribution rather than productivity. And if you think about the third way, Clintonism or Blairism in the 1990s and early 2000s, the attitude was, you know, let the economy do what it wants to do and we will redistribute from those who then get rich to those who don't do so well. I think that is, is a failure on many levels. It, it failed politically, but it fails because it doesn't take into account that the people at the bottom of that process, it's not satisfying to simply be redistributed to if your own efforts aren't rewarded in the market. So I think the goal has to be what I think of as an equality of productivity. You need to move the economy to a place where everyone can actually go out and do a job productively enough that it warrants a higher wage. So it's a failure if the sort of job on offer is to go and uh, you know wash down a car with a washcloth for minimum wage or typically less in practice. This is not very well known, but among European countries, Sweden and Denmark are the countries that have the highest rate of job-to-job -job 
move moves of job churn people change jobs a lot that is one way in which you manage to combine productivity and a pretty high level of egalitarianism because people move from a worse job to a better job all the time now the reason why the jobs in the nordics uh, can pay higher wages it's partly because they don't have much choice. You look at the history of the Nordics over the last, uh, coming close to 100 years actually, started in the 30s. Because of uh, a strong, continued strong role, strong role of the unions, you have a pretty compressed wage distribution. The lower end wages are high, the higher end wages are, are low compared to other countries, certainly compared to the US. Think about the incentives that that creates for business owners. Um, it means, and this is again back to my example of the car wash, it means there's no point in hiring someone to do a job that isn't very productive. So the jobs that will be on offer will be relatively productive jobs that can pay these high wages. Now, how do you ensure that there are enough of those jobs? Well, here are a couple of other things that the Nordics do well. First, as I mentioned, they're pretty good at smoothing the move from one job to another. And that's partly because they spend quite a lot of money on it. Uh, if you look at the uh, the amount of money spent on what are called active labor market policies, these uh, efforts by government agencies to actually help people move from worse jobs to better jobs, uh, Denmark is, is at the top spending something like 2% of GDP on these sorts of policies. And the US is at the bottom spending something like 0.1%. Um, it's a 20-fold difference. Another thing that they do is to ensure that the level of, of general skills is high and widespread through the population. So if I'm telling you to that we need to be able to adapt to technological change, well, what does adaptability take? Well, it takes a high level of these sort of generalized skills that allow you to learn new things, literacy, numeracy, and of course now digital aptitude, uh, all of which are very high and broadly shared in the population in the Nordic countries. Uh, this is something that struck me at a personal level, uh, having grown up in Scandinavia and moving to living in the UK, living in the US. You know, you, you go to the, in a Nordic country, you even even the sort of lowliest jobs, the supermarket checkout uh, till, you, you, you meet a certain level of sort of skill and numeracy and literacy and competence that you often don't in, like, let's say the US, where, you will find people who have clearly not been uh, well equipped, who have been failed by the educational system. So you see the same thing in quite a few continental European countries. So skills, education, training, and in particular, the ability to learn new things as the economy changes uh, is an important uh, part of this. Uh, and then finally, you need a macroeconomic policy that kind of pushes the economy forward. And that means a much less timid policy in terms of uh, using the government budget to stimulate the economy, using low interest rates and other central bank policies to stimulate the economy. Getting the government and central bank involved to build up demand sounds very 1930s. And of course, the central banks have been key players since the crash of 2008 and now in COVID times. But what hasn't changed, Sandro points out, as the nature of work has changed, as people have flocked to cities to find it is the tax code, particularly in Anglo-America. It's stuck serving the Reagan-Thatcher orthodoxy. 
across the board in rich countries, the top tax rate on wage income, the, the highest wages, the taxes on corporate income, and the taxes on capital income like dividend income, it went down decade by decade across the board from the 1980s through the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, constantly lower rates. That's the opposite of what, you, what you'd expect if you think that the tax system should, to some extent, adapt and offset the underlying dynamic changes in the economy. So I think we, we need to change very radically how we tax. I make three concrete proposals. One is to adopt a net wealth tax. A net wealth tax is a tax that's assessed on the total wealth somebody owns, net of any liabilities like a mortgage. This is a sort of tax that Elizabeth Warren was proposing in the US Democratic primary campaign. It's the style of tax that Switzerland has, that Norway has. It's a tax that could, if you're ambitious, take in quite a lot of money and allow you to lower other taxes. For example, taxes on labor income, the sort of taxes that make it more expensive to hire people. So I think we should shift the tax burden from payroll taxes and, and income taxes on ordinary incomes to my first, uh, my first proposal is a net wealth tax. A second proposal is to fix the problems in international corporate taxation. Too many loopholes that allow multinationals to pay less tax than purely national or local businesses. And finally, a, a carbon tax, what is called in the US a carbon tax and dividend, which in line with the climate challenge we face would impose a significant tax on carbon emissions but then redistribute that money rather than putting it into a government budget, redistribute it on an equal basis to all citizens. And we would do that because we know that it's the people who struggle the most who actually use most of their income on carbon intensive things like fuel. So we don't want them to face the highest hit from the higher prices of, let's say, gasoline and petrol that this would lead to. But it turns out that even the US Treasury has estimated this. If you put in a meaningful carbon tax and then distribute the money equally to everyone, the poorest households would be significantly better off. That all seems very straightforward. But then along comes the pandemic. And the most remarkable thing about this event may not be the virus itself, but the sight of governments around the world essentially shutting down their economies by fiat. Now what? The pandemic, one thing it's done is to intensify the problems that we've been talking about. It's the people in already precarious work conditions on the lowest incomes who have disproportionately lost work and lost incomes in the lockdown. And, and it's because of the lockdown that uh, the health results, the health outcomes haven't been even worse than they have. So in the very short run, we've made the problems worse on the socio-economic side of things. Uh, I would like to think, and, and I think there's, there's a case for believing this, that, that politically it has been a bit of an eye-opener where it's brought home to us the sort of exclusion, lack of belonging in the economy that we're already living with. I think many people who didn't realize before have realized that we depend literally for our lives on many of these humblest jobs, the supermarket shelf stackers, the delivery couriers, the uh, postmen, the bus drivers, and so on, and have realized more about the precarity of the situation 
they live in. So I think there's a, a bit of a political moment here. Now, in the longer term, we need to get out of the lockdown when that's safe. We need to get people back to work. But it was already the case that many of the jobs these people were working in were not good jobs. And it was already true that it'd be good, as I've argued, to get them into better jobs. I think that's even more true now, partly because we owe it to them, but also because many of these jobs will not actually be viable in the post-pandemic world. If we maintain some level of social distancing, for example, hospitality will be changed beyond recognition, probably. So we already had a reason to try to restructure our economies to more, towards more productive, better paid jobs. And I think that um, that need has increased because we all want to get people back to work. But I think we should realize now that as we try to get people back to work, we may not be able to get them back or should not try to get them back to the same jobs, but rather different jobs. And if we, in any case, have to change things around and get people back to different jobs, we might as well try to make those better jobs. The problem, of course, as the experience post the 2008 crash, is that government aid to employers to get people back to work and at reasonable pay ended up making people at the top wealthier, and it took nearly a decade before benefiting those at the bottom. The structure of the economy is sufficiently screwed up <laughs> that some of these uh, rescue packages help the better off before they help the worse off. But that's a reason for pushing them further, because eventually they start coming through, as we saw um, in the last few years of the last recovery. That's one thing to say. Another thing to say is, of course, there are other policies you can pursue to fix this problem. So, you know, don't pull back from the rescues, even if they seem to benefit the people at the top the most, put in place other policies that redirect the result. So I go back to my proposal of a net wealth tax. That would address precisely the issue you are concerned about, the increase in asset values for those who are already rich that comes with uh, low interest rates, for example. Um, I also propose, you know, in the book, I come out in favor of something like a universal basic income uh, as a better welfare policy than what we have in most countries. I mean, that also, that is also somewhere you can go. The carbon tax and dividend is a way to have a proto universal basic income. Those are the sort of things that can help. And in fact, if you look at what governments have done, how radical they've been in the pandemic uh, and to mitigate the economic effects of the lockdown, they have gone much further, even though in a very short-term way, uh, than I, I would have thought possible. So you look at the, uh, the huge increase in unemployment benefits in, uh, in the US. It's very short-term, it's temporary. But the result is that a lot of people, even though they've lost their jobs, are actually better off than they have been in a very long time. It, it's paradoxical. But I hope that people will learn something from that. We've discovered that some of these sorts of policies are actually necessary. Now, the politics of maintaining that, much, much harder. But at least we know more than we did before. It's harder to deny, deny both the need for these sorts of policies and the good that they can do. And they say economics is the dismal science. Well, not as practiced by Martin Sandbu. His book is called The Economics of Belonging. As I said at the start, it is clear and admirably direct writing about what is wrong with the way our economy has evolved over the last 40 years and what can be done to fix it. Thanks to him and to you for listening. And now my economic message. Please go to the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, 
click on the Donate Now button and make a contribution, please, to keep the podcasts coming.